Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Helen Scott, who is a technical writer, speaker, and is currently a Java developer advocate at JetBrains. Helen joins us today from the United Kingdom. Helen Scott, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Brilliant. Thanks, Robbie, and thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to this. It's my very first podcast, so I'm hoping to uh, get some learnings from it as well. Well, welcome to the uh, the podcasting world. So, for everybody listening, you know, given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well maintained software code? So. I've been giving this a fair bit of thought recently. It all boiled down to one thing for me, and that's developer experience. So I framed it as what does the developer experience say about the code base? And then I started to extract that into some kind of tangible things, and I came up with three things. These are all kind of based on what I've observed of working with different different software scrum teams across the last 20 years or so. And often I've been a fly on the wall as well, which is quite a unique and quite a privileged place to be when you're, you're making these observations. So the first one that I have determined was how comfortable do the team feel when they're making estimations? Because a pattern that I've noticed is when a team is potentially even uncomfortable coming up with estimations or the estimations are consistently and wildly correct and way off, that in itself tells a story and that story may well be linked to whether or not the code base is maintainable. The second thing that I think really speaks to the developer experience is how does a new starter get up to speed with the code base? So when you know we're, we're onboarding new starters and they're coming in and they're super keen, And the vast majority of time, we give them bugs to fix. And I feel so sorry for them because it's like, oh, it's a great way to get up to speed with the code base. Go and fix this bug. And sure, new starters expect it and they go for it. But I think it's a really telling sign how quickly a new starter can move beyond that, assuming they want to, and start making contributions to the code base that aren't necessarily low-hanging fruit bug fixes. I think that speaks to whether or not the code is maintainable to some extent. The third one, and for me, the, potentially the most important one, is what's the development experience of working on the code base? There's no such thing as a perfect code base. They're all big and ugly in some way. But how, how do the developers feel about working on the code base? Are they enjoying it? Are they having a good time? Are they passionate about it? Do they become animated when they're talking about it? That, for me, says the code base is potentially quite maintainable. They enjoy working on it. If they're not having a good time, then I think that's definitely something that, that needs to be looked at and, again, could speak to a code base that perhaps is not. I like these three particular tangible examples you're providing here. And I, on that first one, in particular, the, the estimating process. And, you know, there's a lot of literature out there and a lot of opinions about, don't you know, I'm, I'm always... I encounter that a lot myself, and I've, I've worked worked with teams, or I have people on my team, or different client projects where, where they're just like, we just never seem to get the estimates right on this one, or or we're always off, or the clients feeling like we're now overestimating so that we don't overpromise anything, and so we're uh, being trying to be optimistic or not. And do you have 
Do you have a, a kind of a take on what you, developers should be aiming for? Should it be, should estimates be framed around like ideal scenarios or do you feel like they should be like, well, within, there's a lot of caveats and then we're, you know, developers may subconsciously or maybe not explicitly add uh, padding around their estimates to, 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 for the unknowns. So I think history is, is the best teacher here. And almost every development team has history and you have history when it comes to estimates. And if you look back over the past six months or the 12, 12 months or beyond, and let's say the team has remained relatively stable, the, there's been no huge changes in the architecture of the product, and the estimates are still off, under or over, then that for me is a, a sign of let's look deeper into that. It may not be related to the maintainability of the software. It may, it may be a sign of something else, but whatever it's showing, it definitely needs exploring as to why those estimations are perhaps not not always true to form when it comes to the actual reality of the project. Certainly when the estimations are under, that can speak to a whole range of things such as ugly dependencies, close coupling of code, things that make developers slightly twitch. So I think that uh, history is by far the most important thing that we can actually look at when we're, we're determining how the best way is to proceed. Have you found there to be good patterns or you've seen work well for how units of work are estimated? I know there's, you know, story points and there's different ways that people do that, you know, different in that level. But also, are you a fan of things like like story card, like a story point poker type games and things like that that teams can play? I'm going to give you that really annoying answer now of it depends. Really, it depends on the team so much. Some developers thrive on story points, some developers thrive on hours, some developers want nothing to do with estimates whatsoever. It it really depends on the team. And I think to get the most value from the process, you have to be speaking to them and saying, how do you want to work? What works for you? Because even in one organization, what works for one scrum team is almost certainly not going to work in the exact same cookie cutter fashion for another scrum team because they have different drivers and they have a different code base and they have different pressures and they have potentially different skill bases in the team as well. So I think I've seen probably most of them and I've seen probably most of them succeed and fail in equal quantities. So it would be talk to the developers and find out what they actually, how they want to work and how their team works best and let them explore, right? Let them, let them try something out. This is not a, well, we've got to pick how we're going to estimate stories and then we can't change it for the next three years. This can be a very flexible feast. You can pick something, try it. And maybe, maybe even by changing from, I don't know, days to story points to pick two random examples, you'll see estimations change either for better or for worse. And that in itself tells a story. And again, that can be an indicator of what the code base is and isn't under the hood. Yeah. And one of the other uh, tangible examples you provided with regards to kind of like team sentiment about how they're feeling. And, and, you know, I think what I was curious about is if you found there to be any measurable ways to gauge, say, the how passionate the team is feeling or, or is there, these are more like observations that you're able to kind of acknowledge or, or see as someone in your role, but how do people like that may or may not have, say, a developer advocate on their team 
kind of see these or experiences if it's good or positive things are trending? So a lot of the experiences I've had have been when I've been doing technical writing as a role. And in that role, I've been almost a periphery on a number of teams. It's never almost rarely been one team. It's always been working across multiple teams. But as part of being a technical writer, one of the things that in my view, you have to be very good at is relationships and building relationships because two days before re- before release, the last person the developer wants to see is the technical writer because they want to get the release out and they don't really want to be looking at the documentation, which is absolutely fair. You have to focus on making sure that you have good relationships with the developers and that they understand where you're coming from and you understand just as well the pressures that they're under. So my observations are coming from having those relationships and being a fly on the wall and then seeing when things are going really well and you can see that the team is just buzzing and when things aren't going so well. And perhaps when you you look at the aren't going so well and you look at the estimates and you think, oh, okay, maybe all these things are are telling a story here that we might want to look into. So I've been in a very privileged position, I think, of being able to observe these things whilst not necessarily being at the coalface of these things, being one step removed and watching the kind of highs and lows from a distance, but also integrated as part of the team. I want to pivot the top of the conversation a little bit. And uh, one of the things that I'm always really curious to hear about, because I feel like everybody has a slightly different version of how they answer this. And how do you and say the teams you work on define technical debt? Ah... <sighs> Can someone just get me the answer to that? Um, Technical debt, I have yet to find the perfect answer for. I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. I have observed it in many, and I've observed many different approaches to it, like a percentage on each sprint, a whole sprint now and again, doing technical debt that is in the area of the code that we're currently working on because it makes sense. We've got that stuff checked out. And I haven't, yet seen a real sweet spot. I've seen it work. I've seen it work very well, but it's not been in the majority of cases. That does make me sad because I want the answer to it. So if anybody has the answer, let me know. It always, teams always seem to be very conflicted and very, they have time and they have business critical stuff and fires. Obviously business business critical stuff and fires invariably takes priority. And then tech debt invariably gets dumped off the bottom. I think that's a real tough place to be. And it's really hard for the team as well to kind of manage that, especially, again, it goes back to all development teams being different. Some teams want to manage the whole tech debt piece in the team. Other teams want it to be prioritized alongside feature development and want a portion of time associated to it. Uh, I think as well... It's really important to remember that not all tech debt is born equal and the prioritization of tech debt is really, really difficult. And I found this as a product owner as well. It's it's hard to prioritize because it is hard to quantify. And you can quantify tech debt, the, well, the team, the team of developers can quantify tech debt very, very easily. But taking that knowledge out of the team and quantifying it to other stakeholders who arguably have a say on the priorities of the team I have found is really challenging because how do you quantify 
how do you quantify tech debt? If we fix this piece of tech debt, we'll have less business critical buyers? Maybe, maybe not. If we spend, I don't know, two weeks on this, does that mean that we, will, we won't get this feature in? Then will that customer be annoyed? It's a constant balancing act and one that I don't think there is a perfect answer to. Unfortunately, I wish there was. <laughs> You know, it's interesting given your the roles that you've been in, and sometimes I talk with developers where I feel like they've they've struggled to figure out how to have those conversations in the first place. What with like with say even just the product owner, let alone that information getting relayed to some other business internal stakeholders and getting prioritized. It's it's just like developers sometimes feel like they don't feel like they have the experience yet, or maybe they feel like they've raised the issue and they're like, well, I don't. This doesn't seem to be a priority for them because they keep saying no, but then I think sometimes there's a, do you have advice for people that might be listening and be like, okay, I feel like I've raised it, but I don't maybe, or some advice on how to, or how not to raise, maybe, maybe it's easier to point out some like anti-patterns and maybe for this of like how not to approach say a product owner and be like, I think there's some areas we needed to take care of here. So my advice there would be give as much information as possible and explain it like you would explain it to a five-year-old because that's not in any way patronizing. You, you potentially have to get buy-in from stakeholders who do not even work in the same office as the development team back in those days. You, you really need to put as much information in, i.e. What's, what's the potential impact? Rough estimates if you have them. How, how is this going to improve the code base? What, what are the potential pitfalls of doing this? Try to, try to get out of the mindset of... Um, well, I just need to fix this because that's a really easy mindset to get into. I get into that all the time when I'm creating content because I just think about myself and my content. If possible, step outside of that little circle and think, right, what's the cons of doing this as well? Because I think sometimes that's that's overlooked and developers are really nervous to to say that because they think that might actually go against that tech debt being prioritized. But I think it's really important to get both sides of the coin and actually understand the impact of the tech debt. Because if a developer is saying, this tech debt is really important and I'm really worried about it, then I would hope the business is is taking note of that. But the business is also always under other external pressures. It is a constant balancing act. So as much information as feasibly possible would be my advice. If so, let's say right now a developer is listening and they don't feel like there isn't a, an established protocol for when is it important enough to raise with the product owner when it, and versus just take care of it. And unless it becomes a huge hindrance to the sprint, I don't, I don't need to know all those details. Good question. Um, I, so I learned a lot about this when I was doing the product owner role. And if I had my time over, I think I would do it differently, but I think Again, I know I'm going on about it, but give the team the control and autonomy to make that decision. If they want to completely internalize their heap of tech debt and they want to nibble away at it as they are making changes to that area of the code because there's features or whatever going in, crack on. There is but. There is always a but. Tech debt, you know, it's it's they are the development team. So let's say there is a coding change. What is the impact of that coding change? Even if it's tech debt, what is the impact? Is there a testing impact? Is there a documentation impact? Is there a performance impact? Is there an architectural impact? 
And at that point, it starts getting a little bit complex because you've got other stakeholders that potentially need to be involved. And it's a case of, okay, well, we've got the sprint and we've committed to this much work. If we fix this piece of text debt, which we all really want to fix because we're here and we're working on this area of code, but it has all these external dependencies, have we gone through due diligence and have we, have we communicated the change? Because the last thing you want to do is address a piece of tech debt, push the release out there and find that you've inadvertently caused a, a problem that is not going to, you know, is, is going to cause customer impact. So, and I have seen that happen a long time ago now and it was very painful, but it does happen. So I would say, Again, ask the team, what do they want to do? Do they want the autonomy to work on that pile of debt? Hopefully not pile, but tech debt themselves. Or would they rather it was prioritized alongside all the feature work, in which case you're potentially looking at the kind of percentage per sprint model or one sprint every five sprint model or whatever it is. It's always interesting how different teams try to stay on top of that or what they even consider to be technical debt or not versus just say, well, that's some older cold code that we're no longer needing to interact with very, very often anymore. And so it's like, it's working, it's running, but maybe nobody knows, knows a lot about it until we need to know something about it, I think is always kind of like the fear. But then, you know, as you're listing off some of these things that teams may need to be, may need to account for when they're weighing up the potential costs or effort needed, you start listing off things like performance, documentation, how this might change the deployment infrastructure, all these other things I think sometimes end up being the reason why people are like, well, it's easy enough to raise a concern or complain about something, but then you're like, well, now I have a huge laundry list of things I need to go think about that are actually even beyond just this particular thing that relate to it. And then, well, I'll just save that for another day. And then what ends up happening probably is that another day becomes another year. That's a good reason in my mind to, to raise it and raise it with all that information. So severity, impact areas, because otherwise you're absolutely right. It will just be another piece of tech debt. And if we feel strongly enough about it, then raising it with as much information as possible allows it to be prioritized and hopefully actioned over time. We'll be back with our interview with Helen in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Helen Scott. So for those that might be listening that are unfamiliar with the role of, say, a Java developer advocate, what are you responsible for? Largely content creation and working with developers in the community. So there's no two days that are really the same from what I've determined so far. So I create, <laughs> uh, I create screencasts for IntelliJ Idea and I do blogs as well some social media stuff, so some stuff on Twitter and Facebook, uh, a webinar, get to do cool podcasts like this. It's it's a huge range of things that I get to create, but I get to create them with the view of how can I best help the community that are using our tools? How can we best serve them? That's really exciting, actually. I'm really enjoying it. 
Thanks. And how long have you been in that role? Oh, coming up six months now. So. Okay, nice. You know, you know, you mentioned you were a product owner, technical writer in the past. I think a lot of the people that are listening, I, I, I'm making an assumption that a lot of them are, you know, individual contributor software de- developers themselves. I, th- I think I, I'm hoping we can expand beyond that. But but given that, like, let's just I'm just gonna say like 90 percent of them probably are identify that way, and some of them, some subset of them may write blog posts participate online in some sort of public forum of communicating and sharing ideas about how they're doing things with their tooling. For those that would be curious about maybe moving into this type of work at some point, do you have any advice for them on like things that they might be considering and how they can build up some of the skill sets that might be a little bit outside just being a really good coder on a team? Yeah. So my, my first job actually was a Java developer a long time ago. Uh, so coming from from the from the development background and then pivoting to technical writing because I did not have a great experience out of the gate as a programmer. So I pivoted to technical writing and then product owning and then most recently this. But one thing that has stayed constant throughout the back, two things that have stayed constant throughout that process are my love for creating content and my love for communicating. And it's those two things that really have glued my whole career together. So when, I, when you're working as a technical writer, you're creating plenty of content, but you're often doing it behind a corporate wall. Right? If, if people are reading the documentation, and yes, I know no one reads the documentation, but if people are reading your documentation, they have no idea who wrote it. They just know someone at this company wrote that. With communication, one of the things, again, that I've loved throughout my career is I got to be in the very privileged position of working with many scrum teams, many development teams in different organizations and getting to know them. And it's the communicating between the teams has been really important for me and building the relationships. And you really scale that up with developer advocacy because you're not dealing with scrum teams at one company, you're dealing with developers as a community as a whole and understanding what their needs are and what their drivers are and how best you can serve them. So it's it's using the skills and the passions that I have and taking it to the next level, which is, is really cool. How do you go about, you know, determining, you know, I'm, I'm guessing because given that you work within the context of like a product, right, in, in, a, in a public scenario where the, you know, it's people listening are like, some of them are using, you know, the application that you're producing content for to help them hopefully learn new th- features and ways to, to take advantage of the tool. So I think that's really helpful. What, what does that look like from, uh, like, you know, you mentioned on data, how do you go about sourcing out ideas for things like, oh, there's gaps in our content or is it literally like someone tweeted about like, I don't know how to do this or is it because you're having conversations with people? It's, it can, it can be exactly that. Uh, we have a, we have no shortage of work to do. <laughs> we have a very big backlog and we, we prioritize that based on what's currently happening in the industry, what's hot, what's not. Also going out, well, obviously <laughs> current situation, we can't go to conferences, but attending conferences as best we can from our homes and finding out what our developers are talking about and what would they like to learn about. So one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about is because I, I did start my, my career off as Java programming and then I pivoted to technical writing. 
I am potentially going to give away my age here, but when I was programming in Java, IDEs were not a thing. They just were not a thing. We were programming in Vi. And if you've ever programmed in Vi, it's not a particularly pleasant experience. I know some people out there will strongly disagree with me, but uh, for me, it was not a nice experience. Uh, I really struggled with it. And coming back to Java after the hiatus and you know, learning and seeing what's changed, being able to do that with an IDE is such a pleasure. There's, it's, it's like someone holding my hand, even though they're not directly here with me. So that's something that I'm particularly passionate about as a developer advocate is what's the experience of potentially people who are new to Java, but potentially people who know Java, but might be new to the IDE. So that's something that we can, we can definitely work on. It's something that I'm, is particularly close to my heart because I found it so frustrating the first time around. What are ways that you've seen teams effectively capture and document like the ideas for things that do like this type of maintenance work that does need to happen? Or do you find that it's often best documented in some sort of growing backlog or alongside features? Or I know it's pure, I can also sense that you might respond to this with like, well, it depends on the team. <laughs> It, it does depend on the team, and I have seen it done a few different ways. It does very much depend on your tooling, right? There's lots of tooling out there that is quite hierarchical, that there's lots of tooling out there, and indeed schools of thought out there that backlogs should only be X length, like three months or six months. I have rarely seen tech debt get fixed within three months or six months of going onto a backlog. So I think if tech debt is going to be taken seriously. It does need to be on the backlog and I think it needs to be prioritized alongside the stuff that the business is looking for. Uh, I think as soon as you you start to let that slide, you are in danger of creating or contributing to a code base that is not going to be as maintainable. So I would say hierarchy is good, but when you get tech debt coming on, so when developers add tech debt, which of course they're absolutely right to do, make sure it gets discussed. Make sure it gets discussed in a team setting. Everyone knows it's there and everyone can have a chat and go, right, one, are we going to fix this? Two, if we fix it, what are the impact areas? Three, are we going to fix it in the next six months, however long the, the, the product backlog is, is deemed to be? If we're not, is it important enough to fix a tool? And once you've had those discussions in a you know, a nice open way, you can decide, well, okay, it's either going to go on the backlog or I have seen a team use a special place for tech debt that was not the backlog. Uh, they had, I'm trying to remember, I, was it, a, it was either an Excel spreadsheet or so, it was something really mundane like that, that they just dropped stuff in. But what they did was every three months, they made the time as a team to go back to that and go, it's time to clean out the spreadsheet. Is anything going to make it onto the backlog? If it's not, really, what, why are we even putting it here? Because if it needs to be fixed, then we need to be getting the business case across to the product owner with all the impact areas if we all feel that strongly about it. And that worked really well for them, actually. That worked really, really well. That's probably the, the best example I've seen of using tooling that arguably you wouldn't necessarily associate with tech debt. But they kept revisiting it. They didn't just let it stagnate and rot. They kept going back to it, which was really good. That kind of gets into the the realm of how important it is for teams to establish, say, those recurring ceremonies or processes that where they where they're forced to have these conversations. And I know that there is always a sentiment in the 
community that were maybe fatigued with meetings and conversations about things that couldn't this be an email or what have you. And I'm, you know, we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic. So for those listening might be wondering what we're talking about. Uh, for, if you, you, you forgot what happened in, in 20 and 2021 and 2022, and we're six years into a pandemic. I hope so. I'm kidding. Um, but in terms of like how teams do that, do you have, I'm actually curious, do you, have you seen, you know, if you're, you know, in, in your position now for six months, that's been in the middle of a pandemic. Have you noticed that the, uh, the ecosystem and the people are looking for different ways to interact and rely on their tools in a way that given that people may not be dozens of software developers in a, in a, you know, in their offices closely collaborating together and like needing to find other ways to interact and collaborate together? I think, so one of, one of the things that I'm particularly passionate about that's kind of related to that is pair programming. I always thought it was cool when I saw developers doing it in real life, you know, back, as you say, pre-pandemic. But it was only when I joined JetBrains and I started I started pair programming with my colleagues. I was like, wow, this is really cool. I, I came up with ideas that I would never have come up with by myself just because someone else was on the call. So I think developers are looking for technologies that are that are doing that more and more. I know JetBrains has just launched Code With Me, so that's their collaborative collaborative tool for developers. That's going to be, well, I've already been using it for pair programming with my colleagues, which is cool. I think we're we're all so used to it now. We're all in this, this routine. We've been in this routine for, what, 10 months? And the novelty's worn off. So we are now... <laughs> We are now turning to our to our tooling to understand what we can do in that respect, and I think I think I'll just end it there. I think most we we are turning to our tooling, and that's important. I think for for those listening, you know, I know that even our team has been, you know, maybe using uh, some tools that we wouldn't have considered using like a year or two ago because we're like, well, we you know most of the time we're in the office together. People would occasionally be working from home, and now we're all working from home and trying to find ways to make it even quicker and easier for people just to quickly jump in and do some like ad hoc pairing or being more intentional about scheduling that. So they're like, okay, we're going to do this every week at this time. So that way we don't have to hopefully, you know, it's, it's different than when you're in an office together and you can see when people and like, Hey, can I get a couple minutes with you? And it's when people are remote and you don't want to bother them because you want to, everybody's trying to find their way of getting some level of focus or get into a flow with their projects. And that's a, yeah, I think there's, I think there's definitely a higher barrier to, to communication. Now we're, we're all in this situation because you can you can't rely on body language. We can't see each other. We have no idea whether someone's having a good day, whether they're kids in the background homeschooling. We have no idea if they just woke up particularly stressed that day because, because that day. So I know I used to rely very heavily on that when, I worked in offices and now, you know, we don't have that. So it's, I think we have to almost be hypersensitive to it in terms of the only way that we can get hold of people is picking up the phone or messaging them. So, and some people, especially developers, I certainly don't like it if I'm in the middle of, you know, solving something code. And someone's like, have you got a minute? No, 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 I haven't right now. Uh, so being able to reply and just, and just feeling empowered to say, nope, because I need to make my, my code maintainable. So I'll come back to you in half an hour. So I think, I think that's really important as well, especially right now. 
Yeah, did, and for those listening, don't don't ask someone if they have a minute because it's never just a minute. That's uh, <laughs> very true. <laughs> and like, do you have a half hour? Or I also know that there's those times where the people asking asking that question, popping over to Slack or whatever tools you're using, and you're like, I they're like I don't know what the problem is. Maybe you have just a quick idea of what might break me through this 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 challenge that I have in front of me right now. And so I, I can understand why people do that. It's just like a, it's hard. Sometimes you don't know because it's hard to estimate how long it's going to take to fix something when you don't know what the heck's going on in the first place. And so I think that's a tricky, but I also don't want to deter people from asking their, their peers for, for help and assistance. And so it's a... No, definitely not. Definitely not. That's, that's equally important is to make sure that we, we carry on keeping those lines of communication open as best we can. That's super important. Now we're all remote. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. You know, you think you're, you're just touching on that it's important to be able to like feel comfortable to say no, not right now. Do you have any advice for those people that might be on the receiving end of a lot of those messages and being like, how do you better structure some of their time or make their availability a little bit more clear? think I'm terrible at this. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to say, and, and I will say, be, be comfortable saying no or be comfortable saying not right now. Uh, I have a lot to learn in this department. Um, I, someone, case in point, someone today has said, oh, please, could you do a talk tomorrow in this slot? Because, because we have the slot and we need, we need someone to do this five-minute presentation. <laughs> and do I have a five-minute presentation prepped? No. Have I got time to prep one? No. Am I in meetings tomorrow morning until the presentation? Yes. <laughs> and I've said yes. So my advice is probably terrible advice. But I would encourage myself and listeners to just be comfortable with saying, not right now, but I will get back to you, and then just sticky noting it and making sure that you do go back to them. I appreciate that. You know, using that example of, you know, you saying yes to something, do you feel like you have a process that you'll be able to rely on or procedures that you typically would do that would get you ready for that? So you're not like inventing something from scratch for that five minute you know, presentation tomorrow? I guess I do have mechanisms in that. I pinged a couple of friends and said, what would you like to hear me speak about? And they came back and gave me a couple of ideas. So, and that's been enough to then trigger myself to go, okay, well, I could talk about that. And clearly I don't have time to create fancy slides. So I'm going to do very quick and dirty slides and do a lot of talking. Well, it's not a lot of talking. It's only five minutes. Thankfully, yep. I would not have said yes if it was a longer presentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yes, ask, ask your colleagues, ask your friends. Uh, they, are, they are your colleagues and friends for a reason. So they, they're going to help you out. I appreciate that. And I, I know what it's like to be on that, to, to volunteer for things. Actually, it was like maybe an hour before our, our conversation. And one of 
one of our software developers was having a tr was having a problem with the project, and he thinks it's related to his internet connection because he moved to the middle of the United States into a very rural area, and his internet connection's not been very reliable. And so I was like, oh, I'll just chat off for five minutes, and then like thirty minutes later, I'm like, oh no, I gotta go. I literally need to like go prep for a podcast. I gotta drive to our office because that's where the recording equipment is and go do that and i was like oh no i i, I this wasn't just a quick one minute thing was it robbie and i, I know better but i i can't help but want to help people but then at the same time it almost puts me into a panic and running you know running around so a couple of quick last questions for you helen what non-technical slash say non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in the industry so some I was complaining on Twitter the other day that I needed some long haul flights to get through my audio backlog, uh, my audio book backlog. And one of my colleagues was like, great, what's your genre? What do you like reading? And then I, I looked at my uh, my audio list and I was like, eh, I don't I don't really have a genre, as it turns out. There's like no specific type of book that I go for. So the one that I am currently reading and thoroughly enjoying is uh, Susie Dent, Word Perfect because words are amazing. I love words. Learning the history of them and how they came into being and how they came into common use is, is really fascinating for me. So that's a really good book. And there's a word for every day. So never short of the daily reading. Oh, nice. I'll definitely include a link for that in the show notes for everybody. And for those, for everybody listening, if they want to kind of follow along and see the content you're producing and keep up on your writing and stuff like that, where can they find you online? On Twitter, Helen Joe Scott, and so the screencast that I'm producing, see for the JetBrains IntelliJ IDE. So we have a YouTube channel. We have the blogs that we put out on the on the JetBrains website. So that's where the majority of content ends up. I do also blog about some IntelliJ stuff and some personal stuff on HelenJoeScott.com. Oh, excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable, Helen. Thanks very much for talking shop with us. Thanks for having me. Oh, 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 oh.